Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL with you every weekday afternoon from 3 to 4 p.m. Just in time for you to pick up your kids and maybe do a little extra learning on the way home from school. Well, folks, we've done it yet again. I mean, we've been doing it. I haven't talked about it very much, but good news. The highest recorded average price of gasoline, $4 and about 19 cents. That is today's average here in the state of Louisiana. For diesel, uh, we're not at our most recent high. Diesel's gone down a little bit since it peaked on the 13th. But currently, uh, diesel in Louisiana, the average is uh, about $5.21. The high, uh, our, our peak so far has been $5.22 across the state. Here in Lafayette, the current average is $4.20, diesel at about $5.17 on average, and it's just continuing to climb. It is, uh, it, it's just constantly climbing. The situation is getting dire, and... What's so interesting about it is that you had, you probably did not hear much about it today, but you had a hearing in front of the Senate Energy Committee this morning where the Premier of Alberta, Canada, Jason Kenney, basically unloaded. And there are some clips. I wish I had the clips in front of me, but I do have um, an excerpt from his opening statement. I just want to read this to you because it makes... A ton of sense. After the United States spent hundreds of billions of dollars securing Persian Gulf energy over the last 50 years, it turns out the solution to the challenge of energy security is your closest friend and ally. Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine has proven the danger of allowing dictators to dominate global energy markets and weaponize oil wealth, using it to spread violence, instability, and terrorism around the world. That's why we were so taken aback when President Biden vetoed the the Keystone Pipeline, the Keystone XL Pipeline. It would have safely delivered 830,000 barrels of oil a day, responsibly produced uh, Canadian energy to the United States, more than displacing the 670,000 barrels a day that you brought that you bought from Putin's Russia last year. He, is, he, he went in to this hearing attacking the Biden administration, um, really just slamming the Biden administration from working so hard to get oil from OPEC instead of from Canada. Uh, he also uh, was set to slam, I'm, again, I don't have the, the transcript or anything in front of me, but was also planning to slam uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, for trying to close the Enbridge Line 5 pipeline despite the Canada-U.S. pipeline treaty that's in place. So you have the premier of Alberta, Canada, who is in front of the Senate Energy Committee today, just blasting the Biden administration, rightfully so, for shutting down, for for vetoing, uh, signing away the Keystone XL pipeline, a pipeline that would have us in a position where we aren't struggling for gasoline and oil right now. And again, this is all as we get, I mean, tonight, tonight there are 26 primaries across the United States, 26 primaries. And a big 
factor in all of these primaries are voters trying to determine who's going to be the best to tackle the economic issues of the country. Republicans are choosing are, are looking for somebody who will fight the Biden administration on their energy policies, and Democrats are trying to find somebody who can just kind of talk down the crowd at this point. The Democrats have no plan. I've said that before. I'll continue saying the Democrats have no plan. Again, in the United States, the average for a gallon of gasoline is is $4.52. In Louisiana, $4.19. That's the average. Here in Lafayette, the average right now is about $4.20. The Biden administration has chosen the worst energy policies and has exacerbated the problem in a tough and already struggling economy. Now with inflation making things worse. And they have no answer. No answer whatsoever. And it's not just gas prices. It's not just oil. Uh, coming up after this break, we will talk with Scott Lincecum, who wrote a, a great piece kind of explaining the formula shortage that we're seeing in the United States. We're looking at uh, food shortages, fertilizer shortages, so food production will be even lower. All sorts of shortages in the economy, and there's no answer. 232-1542, if you want to call in, be part of the conversation. In the next segment, we will be talking with my buddy Scott Lincecum. We'll have all that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542. If you'd like to call in and be part of the program a little later on in the show. But right now, uh, my friend Scott Lincecum is joining us. He wrote a fantastic piece. Uh, I did put it up on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, uh, all about this formula shortage. I, I mentioned the last segment, you know, right now we're looking at higher gas prices and everything, just shortages in several dif- different areas. But Scott, I think, had the best breakdown of the formula shortage and how we kind of got here. Scott, how are you today? Hey, doing fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So uh, just kind of want to... You know, let you know. Yeah. At, right now, I, th- I think we saw a story today. The FDA and Abbott are now agreeing on a plan to resume production of infant yeah. formula. About time. Uh, but what got yeah. us to the point that we're at right now? Right. So, um, I mean, first, the, the most obvious thing is, look, the pandemic was doing what the pandemic does. Um, you know, if you look back to, say, January or so, uh, you saw a lot of articles about there being a little stress in the baby formula market, um, you know, and it's the usual stuff, trucker shortages, uh, supply chain stuff, um, uh, labor shortages, you, you name it. Um, that then was compounded by the February uh, plant shutdown by Abbott in Michigan, um, which really uh, knocked a big hole in the market as well. Now, the, the difference between uh, a normal market, however, in this market is that in a normal market, what would happen in, this, in that case is that prices would rise a little bit, additional supply would enter, either enter the country or come online, you know, others would kind of uh, jump into the breach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, draw on in by a profit motive and whatever else, good old free market capitalism. This market, however, is severely distorted by all sorts of government policies. Um, The first big one is trade. 
Um, for years and years and years, the United States has protected our dairy industry through a complex system of tariffs and quotas and the rest. And this includes an infant formula, which is uh, made from uh, most is made from from dairy products. Mm -hmm. And so we have tariffs on infant formula um, starting at like 17 and a half percent. And then they kick up a notch once you hit a certain import quantity. So if you import, say, 100 units or whatever, next thing you know, the import, the tariff jumps from 17 to even higher. Well, that, of course, discourages uh, product from entering the country. Mm -hmm. uh, now, again, though, in a normal market, um, foreign producers would see a potential profit opportunity when prices rose here, when supply was restricted, and they might enter the market. The problem there is that the FDA um, imposes another barrier on imports, um, very strict regulation of imported baby formula. Um, registration requirements, inspection requirements, nutrient requirements, labeling requirements, you name it. So the FDA for the last year has actually been seizing, uh, well, through customs, has been seizing baby formula at the border. Um, and this is not, just to be clear, baby formula from China. China actually doesn't export much baby formula at all. Your major players in the global baby formula market are going to be in Europe, Switzerland, Germany, Holland, a little bit in Scandinavia, um, New Zealand, Australia, and a little bit in, in developed Asia, like Japan, for whatever. Um, so a lot of these shipments were getting seized. And so that has effectively created a wall around the United States. 98% um, of all U.S. consumption of infant formula is accounted for by domestic production, by our domestic manufacturers. It's basically what we call autarky. So you, you essentially are, are, are wholly uh, dependent on your, your domestic production. Um, so if that weren't bad enough, even our free trade agreements are protectionist when it comes to infant formula. In fact, uh, President Trump's most recently renegotiated deal with Canada and Mexico, the NAFTA renegotiation, imposes new restrictions on Canadian infant formula entering the United States, um, intended to discourage investment in the Canadian infant formula manufacturing sector. So we're actually trying to actively discourage Canada from getting a, a globally competitive infant formula industry. We probably could have used that right now when our domestic supplies went down, right? But then there are all these import restrictions and the rest that prevent that. Um, and then the last piece of the puzzle is welfare policy. Um, we have a very large program in the United States called WIC. It is part of the SNAP Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, WIC. So WIC started out pretty small, um, and it gives low-income parents vouchers for infant formula. Um, but WIC has grown over the years, as government programs often do, um, to uh, account for about half of the U.S. infant formula market. That makes the government essentially a monopsonist. It's like it's the opposite of a monopoly, yeah. um, where it can dictate terms to producers. Um, and what the government has done is essentially told producers in the United States they have to sell to the government at rock bottom prices, way below market, um, if they want to win WIC contracts. But 
we, we offer a carrot. They will be the sole provider of WIC products in the state where the contract is awarded. So we call this sole source contracts. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is makes some sense from the government side. And hey, taxpayers do save them some money. That's good. But the problem is, is that this is a recipe for a very concentrated market. New startups, nobody's going to be able to enter a market where half the market is controlled by the government. You have to essentially lose lose money to potentially make money in the long term, because WIC contract winners do end up getting um, benefits in the non-WIC part of the market. They can, they can basically muscle out their competition there. They get better shelf space. They get more promotion by the government, all that kind of good jazz. So nobody's going to want to enter that market. Nobody's going to want to invest in that market. And essentially, it is a recipe for exactly what we have. And that is, we have three very large name brand producers that account for almost all of U.S. production. There's one other smaller uh, generic brand producer. And um, again, a highly concentrated market that when one of those producers has a problem, well, guess what? You don't have the capacity and supply diversity you need to pick up the slack. Um, And then adding insult to injury on the WIC side of things is that Abbott just so happens to be the biggest WIC contractor. So that meant Abbott was the biggest producer in the country, accounting for about 40% of all infant formula sales. Um, And when then that production got compromised, well, then that's an even bigger problem because you have WIC consumers scrambling to find new product. And of course, you have just a big hole in in the supply as well. And again, a foreign production that cannot enter the market to help out and fill the gap. So... Again, Scott Lincecum, he's, he's with the Cato Institute, had a fantastic piece at the Capitalist at the Dispatch. Um, so we have this this hyper concentrated market. We have a, yeah. a federal regulatory state that has basically ensured that anything that comes from outside the U.S. is going to the black market um, where the FDA yeah. is trying to seize it off of there. Uh, is there an immediate solution aside from, again, the FDA working with Abbott to reopen its production plant? Is, are there any other immediate solutions that we can do to get supply up? Yeah, and unfortunately here, I'm not very optimistic. I mean, I, I will credit the Biden administration that they are looking to relax some FDA rules on imports. But if you look at the fine print there, the FDA is still making producers jump through a bunch of hurdles, um, and it's really not clear how much supply is available elsewhere. Um, so, it, it you know, imports are the obvious place to look, but because foreign producers haven't set up manufacturing and distribution channels in the United States and retailers haven't, you know, they don't have shelf space for this product and the rest, it's really unclear how much any of this is going to help right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The hope is that domestic producers can step up. The hope is that some import supplies can come in and help on the margins a little bit and that, you know, Abbott just gets up and running again and we muddle through. I think the the bigger hope here is that this is a a lesson that Congress might actually take action to ensure this never happens again, because we need to be killing these tariffs. We need to be streamlining and rethinking our FDA regulation. I mean, if it's good enough for European babies and their strict regulatory regime, and if American moms want European formula, well, they should be able to to buy that formula. And and quite frankly, uh, it'd be safer to go through the formal market than to go through the black market. Mm-hmm. Um, and producers could set up, again, official distribution channels and, and the rest to handle it. Um, and then, again, WIC 
WIC needs to be reformed as well. You know, um, I'm rarely one to actually urge the government to spend more money, but in this case, we're not talking about a lot of money. And these sole source contracts and these below market prices are really distorting the infant formula market to such that it becomes it's really brittle and concentrated and, well, quite frankly, creating the problems we now have. Scott, uh, thank you very much for that rundown. Um, unfortunately, we're, we're going to be up against the clock here. I, I, I do want to ask you yes, real quick, real quick. Um, I know I, I don't want to blame the Biden administration because, again, pr- uh, pandemic era and all that. But has the Biden administration really helped? Yeah, it, uh, I mean, I think they're scrambling to help now. And I will give them credit a little bit on the import side. But I think where they really dropped the ball is that this this problem was evident uh, weeks and weeks ago. Um, and it really, uh, according to various reports, the FDA was seizing, or Customs was seizing European baby formula um, up until a couple days ago. And so I do think they deserve um, some blame for what they've been doing related to these, these smaller shipments coming from abroad. Um, it does seem that there's been a lot of heightened enforcement over the last year or so, denying moms uh, that, that supply. Um, and that that's where I think you know there there really should be some some deeper digging into what the heck they were thinking um, in stepping up uh, the enforcement. You know, treating moms like drug mules. You know, it just doesn't yeah. make much sense. All right, Scott. Thank you very much, Scott Lindsay. at the Cato Institute also writes for the Dispatch. You can check out his story on Facebook.com/slash Joe Cunningham Show. Scott, thank you very much for joining. My pleasure. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Uh, special thanks to my buddy Scott Lensicum for joining us in the last segment to kind of break down the issues with the formula shortage. Now, again, one of the things is locally you can find baby formula around. The, the country is currently at about 40 to 50 percent capacity uh, in terms of formula. So in some areas, pr- predominantly major urban areas, you're seeing those shortages. A lot of niche formulas, a lot of specialty formulas, you're seeing less of that and more of kind of the generic uh, basic stuff. But it's still a shortage that is hitting a lot of American families very hard. And that hyper-concentrated market that that Scott was talking about is is key to this. You have three major manufacturers in the United States and a a federal regulatory state that is restricting outside importation to the United States. It it ostensibly helps protect the American dairy farmer, but at the same time, when you have something as vital as this, as vital as baby formula, having these restrictions and then seeing a shortage coming down the pike, you you really have kind of limited yourself and you've made the situation worse. The Biden administration clearly at this point reacting to the shortage, the FDA now working with Abbott to open it up, but keep in mind, whistleblowers were telling the FDA something was wrong at the Abbott plant months before in before anything happened, months before the FDA actually got involved. So all of this could have been handled a lot sooner. And Abbott itself is coming out and saying, "Yeah, the Biden administration is saying this, but keep in mind, the bacteria that they found at the plant does not match the strain of the bacteria that the, the babies who got sick were testing and everything kind of prove that. So there's there's a lot of issues, not just with the Abbott plant, but in general with the formula shortage that really need to be worked out. And hopefully in the future, we don't see this kind of thing again. Hopefully we learn from it. But the federal regulatory state uh, does not like its power to be uh, removed. So it will probably tighten its grip wherever it can.
I want to, though, look a little bit closer to home now. So at the Daily Advertiser, you have a story out today. Greg Hilburn uh, with uh, USA Today Network has a story out. Will Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves run for governor? He's unimpressed with the field. Now, a couple months back, maybe a month back, I can't remember, a little over a month, I mentioned the Garrett Graves speculation. And I really, I, I, I believe now what I believed then, and that Graves isn't really looking to jump in. And I can tell because his people have not done a whole lot to lay the groundwork for a statewide campaign. Graves um, said in an interview with USA Today Network, I'd be lying if I said I haven't thought about it. I've had hundreds of people, probably approaching a thousand, who are encouraging me to run. But right now I'm focused 100% on my campaign and my job now in Congress, which is fine. He can run for Congress and then start running for governor as soon as the congressional race is over. The problem, the problem is you need the time to lay out a statewide network because look at who your potential opponents are. Billy Nungesser, John Schroeder, and Jeff Landry, all three of whom have won statewide races. Right now, Jeff Landry is the favorite. Almost all the polling that you see, and it's been very sparse because Louisiana just doesn't get a whole lot of polling like that, but all the polling you'll see pretty much indicates Jeff, it's Jeff Landry's to lose. Schroeder, I think, would be an interesting pick, and I actually might end up favoring him more than Landry, but we'll see. But Landry's the favorite. Nungesser is trying to be the moderate in the race, and no moderate to liberal voter is going to go to Billy Nungesser when they're going to have their own candidate in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is going to have a black candidate on the ballot. That's a given. I still think Gary Chambers is running against John Kennedy this year to lay the foundation for a race next year for governor. But it could be Gary Chambers. It could be Sharon Weston Broom, who has been talking about it, and apparently her allies are pretty sure that she's going to try to make a run for it. But you're going to have a black Democrat on the ballot. So there is, in an active year, a third of the Louisiana voting electorate going for the Democratic Party right there for a black candidate. So the Republicans need somebody who can unite the remaining vote who can pull in some of the Democratic voters who might be a little more toward the center or even right-of-center Democrats in the state. And you need somebody who's going to fight on the issues that Louisiana voters care about. Nungesser has been laying out a campaign where he wants to try to attract Democratic and Black voters. He's, he's been pushing this civil rights trail through Louisiana. He has been working on a lot of things that would, that he's trying to ingratiate himself with Black voters in the state. They're going to drop him the moment there's a Democratic candidate on the ballot. John Schroeder and Jeff Landry are both conservative. And they both, I think, would be a good choice for governor. Jeff Landry, though, is more popular. But here's the thing. Here's something else to consider. If Graves jumps in, that's now a four-way split on the Republican ticket. If we've learned any lesson from the last two election cycles is that these Republican split tickets where everybody's, uh, you know, snapping at each other and not focusing 
on the true target, which is keeping the Democrats out of the governor's mansion, we're going to lose. Or I say we, the Republicans are going to lose. The Republicans need to solidify and unite behind an opponent fairly quickly in the race. None guesser ain't it. None guesser is not going to get it. Schroeder, much as I like him, probably won't get it. As of right now, Jeff Landry gets it. What does Garrett Graves bring to the table? He doesn't have a statewide network so far. He has not won a statewide race. He's won a, he's won a congressional race, but he's not won a statewide race. He's going up against three Republicans who have, three Republicans with their own statewide networks. So Graves has to lay that foundation. But he's not actively dissuading the rumors that he's contemplating a run. And that, I think, is pretty important. I don't know if Graves is trying to let his support, lead his supporters on, let him know, hey, this is the possibility, you know, keep lending me your support. I don't know if he's truly thinking about it, but neither he nor his people have laid any sort of network, any sort of foundation. Graves said, according to the USA Today article, or the, the, the advertiser article, Graves said he believes the encouragement he's getting to run is in part a result of the dissatisfaction with current choices. What it comes back to is, number one, they see the current roster and they're not real excited, he said. They think Louisiana can do better. It's amazing how much discontent there is with the current roster. Graves said Louisiana has the assets to rise from the bottom-ranking status in many critical areas like infrastructure and education. I strongly believe, he says, Louisiana has strategic advantages over other states uh, that other states would kill for, the Mississippi River, ports, affordable energy, but look where we are on the best states list. We should be blowing these other states away. Gray's top five priorities for the state include infrastructure, education, crime reduction, tax code overhaul, and liability laws. Pretty much the average Louisiana Republican platform. But wait, there's more. Because on the horizon, from the U.S. Senate, there is a looming shadow who has not said he's not doing it. 232-1542, if you want to call in, be part of the conversation. Where is John Kennedy in all this? We're going to talk about that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk, 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk, 96.5 KPL. A little bit of breaking news. Uh, this over at The Advertiser, published just a little while ago, uh, w- uh, within this hour, The Advertiser and The Current have won in their records request in a lawsuit over Lafayette Police Chief Harassment Inquiry. Uh, So back in February, uh, Lafayette Consolidated Government uh, basically placed a broad uh, ban over uh, turning over any documentation about the sexual harassment complaint against former interim police chief uh, Wayne Griffin. A local judge ruled that uh, LCG must turn over the records of its investigation. and as of yesterday, it appears that LCG informed both the current and the advertiser that it would not appeal uh, the ruling. So those records will be handed over to the advertiser and the current. I would expect that we start seeing uh, some stories coming out about that, kind of diving into uh, the sexual harassment allegation against Wayne Griffin uh, 
in the coming days and weeks from the advertiser. I will keep track of that, let you guys know as those developments. I, I may also try to get Andrew over the advertiser uh, to come on and kind of tell us what, what he's looking at in the meantime. We'll see if we can get the advertiser on to talk about this and some other issues that they've been covering. But I want to go back. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about the race for governor in Louisiana, because right now everybody's paying attention to what's going on in Pennsylvania and in other states because we've got the midterm elections, all this stuff happening. There's a gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania as well. But what about Louisiana? Okay, so right now, here's the lay of the land. I mentioned this in the last segment, just a brief overview. You got Jeff Landry, who is the favorite to win the nomination. Uh, well, not really nomination. Who's, who's, who's the favorite to get into the runoff in uh, 2023 for governor. You have John Schroeder and you have Billy Nungesser, two other statewide re elected Republicans who are making plans to run as well. Garrett Graves is out there with an interview with Greg Hilburn at USA, USA Today Network. Um, it's over at the Advertiser, an interview talking about how he's, you know, he, he, he's interested, he's looking at it, but he's, he's not planning to run for governor right now. I don't think Graves jumps in. I think he sees the field right now, and as much as he may be dissatisfied with it, or he says other voters are dissatisfied with it, he's not going to jump in to that race. He's not going to make it an even more crowded field. But there's always the speculation about U.S. Senator John Kennedy. Now, Kennedy, if he were to try to run for governor, he'd be, he'd be I think, the first U.S. senator to jump to the governorship in over a century. I think that's right. I don't know that Kennedy is looking to make that jump. There is no indication that he's actively looking at it. Now, remember, four years ago, there were indications. And his people, his allies, were kind of telling the rest of the field, hey, you know, watch out, Kennedy's thinking about it. We're not getting that same information now. We're not hearing those same things right now. Kennedy is doing a pretty good job in the U.S. Senate. I mean, he's, he's a U.S. Senator, Republican from Louisiana. He's got an accent. He's got his witticisms. He's got his great metaphors. He is Captain Soundbite. The media in D.C. hates him for his politics, loves him for his soundbites. He can ask anybody and they will give him time on air. I don't think he wants to run for governor, but, but, but there's no indication that he's not looking to run for governor either. Kind of like Graves, except Graves is giving interviews and Kennedy is not. He's kind of eyeing the field. But here's the difference between Graves and Kennedy. And here's what everybody needs to realize. If Graves jumps in, he's going up against Jeff Landry, John Schroeder, and Billy Nungesser. If Kennedy jumps in and announces he's running for governor, the race is Kennedy and whoever the Democrat is. Jeff Landry will run for re-election. John Schroeder will run for re-election. Billy Nungesser is even not foolish enough to try to run against Kennedy. If Kennedy jumps in, it's his race. It's him versus a Democrat. There is no question about it. He is the most popular Republican elected statewide in the state of Louisiana. He is even more popular than Jeff Landry. 
And if he jumps in, it's his. Right now, he's not planning to jump in, or he's not making any moves to jump in. So right now, the favorite is Landry, but it will be a tougher fight because Landry will be up against Schroeder and against Nungesser. The Democrats, however, have no clear successor to their current governor, John Bell Edwards. Edwards is term limited. He cannot run again. Edwards, being the lone Democrat governor in the South, has a has a has a national platform ready. He has uh, a lo- he can get a lobbying job uh, pretty easily. You know the the sky is the limit for Edwards post politics. But who do the Democrats in the state have beyond that? Sharon Weston Broom. She's currently in a lawsuit over a community that wanted to break away from Baton Rouge. She is trying to sue a group of voters who are dissatisfied with Baton Rouge and want to incorporate into their own city. She's suing the voters over their wishes to basically secede from Baton Rouge. She has no statewide platform. Crime in Baton Rouge is on the rise, been on the rise. It's getting worse. Gary Chambers, Gary Chambers has been talking about running for a Senate, but we've seen him nowhere. He went out of state for a bunch of fundraisers and got a bunch of money from, uh, from the pot companies and others. He made headlines with his uh, pot-smoking commercial. Chambers hadn't been in the state, though. If Chambers runs, he'll have a statewide platform because that's a statewide campaign because he's already done it for this year. Broom has her work cut out for her. Who else would do it? You've got, um, oh, what's, what's his, uh, Cedric Richmond left the, the Biden White House to go work for the, uh, the Democratic National Committee. He could possibly try to jump in. But you, you the Democrats don't have a clear pathway here. You have a lot of statewide elected Republicans who can jump into this race and be fairly successful. The problem with the last two campaign cycles is that you had David Vitter and people were tired of hearing about the the prostitute scandal. And then you had Eddie Rispone, who was an out-of-touch millionaire who dropped a bunch of money attacking a Republican and did nothing to actually attack John Bell Edwards until it was too late. And in the process of attacking his Republican opponent, turned off that entire that opponent's entire congressional district and made them stay home. The Republicans have an opportunity. The Democrats need to find somebody quick. And that's where we are on the governor's race. We're going to go ahead and take a 23-hour break. When we come back tomorrow, we'll talk about these primary results in these various states, talk about where the lay of the land is for the Republicans going into 2022. We'll also have some other local stuff here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 96.5 KPL. Remember, follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and check out the podcast of the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, tune in tomorrow and we'll talk again. You guys have a great evening.